The closers are coming and going. We'll talk about that and all the other fantasy news next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 14th. It's show number 35 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday news and comment edition for you. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, including closer news in St. Louis, Arizona, Los Angeles, and Atlanta. And from the American League with Jock Thompson, including news on Sean Manaya, Nick Tropiano, Jose Abreu, and Chris Sale. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on Atlanta right-handed pitching prospect Kyle Wright. And in our pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at two genuine marquee matchups. Arizona right-hander Zach Greinke in Houston to face right-hander Justin Verlander and... Mets right-hander Jacob deGrom goes to Boston to match up against left-hander Chris Sale. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, continuing our 2019 first-round review from last week by asking Todd Zola about players whose fine 2018 seasons could move them into the first round next year. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about valuation and the hitter-pitcher split. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? How about them A's? We gotta talk some baseball. Hey, how about them A's? After Wednesday night's games, the Oakland Athletics are just one game behind the Yankees for the lead in the wild card race in the American League, with both teams having 16 games left to play and the A's are only three back of Houston for the AL West Division lead. The A's have a relatively soft schedule, a Thursday nighter against the awful Orioles, then six against the Angels, three against the Twins, and three against Seattle, who have fallen out of the race. Oakland also has three games left in Tampa, and that's the toughest opponent they'll face down the stretch. The Yankees have a much tougher time coming. They have six combined against Toronto and Baltimore, but they also have six against their deadly rivals in Boston and four more in Tampa against the resurgent Rays. Houston, meanwhile, might have the easiest 16 games left of all of them. They have three at home versus Arizona, and that looks like their only quality opponent. They also have three each against Seattle, the Angels, and Toronto, and four against the Zeros. I mean O's. Stretch run baseball. There's nothing like it. And in the first inning of this Friday news and comment edition, our Market Watch player news reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. We talked a show or two ago about the much-anticipated promotion of top San Diego infield prospect Luis Urias. He's a, a number 24 overall on the Baseball HQ Top 100 Prospects list. An 8B prospect, which is an all-star borderline caliber type guy is what they expect. But after just 12 games, he was taken out of a game on Tuesday. He hurt his hamstring running out of grounder. Glad to hear he's running out of grounder. A lot of guys don't these days. But he's not going to play again this season is the bottom line. Uh, Jock Thompson covers 
the uh, National League West for playing time today. What goes on with uh, San Diego on the second base position? Well, they got two possibilities at second base. They've got they could uh, use Jose Perella uh, at second base, and he's uh, he's you know Jose Perella's had uh, had four hundred at bats this year and done almost nothing with them. Three homers, five RBIs, th- five stolen bases, thirty RBIs. Let's try that again. Jose Perella's been uh, had four hundred at bats this year. Uh, three home runs, thirty runs batted in, five stolen bases, two fifty batting average. Uh, so almost nothing there from a fantasy standpoint that anyone would want to pay to pay much attention to. Uh, the other possibility is Corey Spangenberg. Uh, Corey Spangenberg is has uh, uh, played a little bit less than uh, than uh, Perellas, but has done better counting stats: seven home runs, six stolen bases, two thirty batting average. And it's hard to know exactly what they're going to do. They Spangenberg gets left-handed. They use him against the left-hander on the night that Urias, uh, the, the game after Urias went out. So uh, things are kind of up in the air in San Diego, which kind of depends on what uh, manager Andy Green decides to do and how he decides to deploy these two over the, the final couple of weeks of the season. But neither of them projects much fantasy value. It seems like in a mixed league, they're both going to be pretty much out of the question. It's going to be a loss for anybody who had Urias because he's definitely not going to play. So uh, Jock Thompson called this a crapshoot, trying to split the playing time between Spangenberg and uh, Jose Perella, and I think that's a good way to put it. It's a crapshoot, and uh, either way you shoot it, you get crap. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Bud Norris in St. Louis lost his hole on the closer role with just an awful performance, Nick, over the last month or so, and they've decided to go in with uh, Carlos Martinez to close games for the Cardinals down the stretch. Phil Hurts on the story. What goes on? Well, Carlos Martinez has been pitching pretty well, and uh, they, at this point, St. Louis is still trying to win some ball games. So, um, Carlos Martinez has been anointed as the closer. Uh, at this point, he's had three saves since the fifth of September, and uh, he's pitching very well in that role. Uh, four, and he's pitched. Uh, he's allowed a couple of hits, but uh, uh, in those four innings, I think has six strikeouts. So, he's pitched very well over the last week as the closer in St. Louis. Uh, and so there's no reason at this point to think he can't do the job and can't hang on to it for the remainder of the season. Martinez, of course, uh, has been a starter for the team from 2015 on. He was starting, you know, 30, 31 games kind of thing. He had 18 starts this year and was not pitching particularly well. Could this be a Dennis Eckersley situation? Uh, Eckersley was an okay starter as his career wound down, and he couldn't start anymore. They shifted him to the bullpen. Uh, is Carlos Martinez in line to be a really successful closer, do you think, based on his uh, actual skills? Well, he might He might be. If you look at those skills in terms of his work as a starter, working at a BPV of 67, and you go, ah. But uh, pitching a short stretch when he only has to pitch an inning or two, uh, and only has to face the lineup one time. Uh, Martinez has got uh, good strikeout ability, uh, decent control. Uh, yeah, I think he might be a very successful closer if they decide to lead him in that role. Interesting keeper play. I'm going to be keeping my eye on that control ratio. It's, it was up pretty dramatically this year from around 3, 3.1 the last few years, all the way up to 4.3 walks per nine. And that's a concern, of course, because among other things, you start wondering about elbow problems and other health problems leading to this increase in walks. At the same time, you had a decrease in strikeouts from over nine to, to under nine, uh, about a, almost a full run uh, uh, I'm sorry, a full strikeout per nine innings down. So 
maybe pitching in these short stints can bump his uh, strikeout rate and re-improve his control, get it back to where it was before, so he's getting into that you know, 3, 3.5 command ratio strikeouts to walks, and if so, he could be a, a guy to watch. Yeah, he could indeed. I mean, he actually shifted the pin when he came back off the DL on uh, August the 21st, and has pitched very, very well in that time frame. Only two earned runs allowed uh, since that time in, let's see, it looks like uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 nine appearances. So pitching very well since his return uh, from the DL and his insertion into the the bullpen. The other thing to watch is going to be uh, fastball velocity up around 96 for the first uh, many years of his National League career, his whole National League career. And then this year, all of a sudden, it drops down to 94, 93 and a half. And that seems like a small incremental loss, but it really isn't, is it, Nick? I mean, that that's a significant drop from ninety six to ninety four is is something that you that is going to make us sit up and take notice. Right. So it's one of those things that you certainly have to pay attention to. Um, since the shift to the bullpen, fastball velocity has been ninety ninety four point six. So as you said, down a little bit from his peak, uh, and that's certainly certainly something to keep an eye on. But up from what he was doing as a as a starter with the longer outings, that's for sure. Uh, Atlanta got some good news uh, insofar as their pennant hopes are concerned. They got their closer back, right-hander Erodis Vizcaino, scheduled to throw on Tuesday, September 11th, and then is going to be activated, or so they say, for Friday night's game. Phil Hertz covers the Braves for uh, Baseball HQ's playing time today. I, I assume that Vizcaino just steps right back into the closer role? Well, maybe not. I mean, it's one of those situations where uh, Atlanta's been doing okay, uh, AJ Mender has been in that role and been doing been doing fairly well. So it maybe they'll just continue with AJ Mender in the closer role uh, for the next two weeks and put Vizcaino in uh, a time or two and see if he's rusty or uh, you know whether he's ready to come back immediately. Maybe you don't make a change at this point. I, the uh, Phil Hertz said that it's not likely that he's going to resume his closer role immediately, but we have bumped up his save projection just a little bit, just in case. Uh, and may may get a, a chance or two to save a game, but I would not expect him to become the full time closer for the rest of the season. Uh, not not a bad situation for Atlanta to be in to have a couple of good potential arms as they head into the stretch run. Speaking of the stretch run, Rob Carroll of Baseball HQ's Playing Time today covers the Arizona Diamondbacks, and their closer Brad Boxberger is really having a rough time at the worst possible time of the year with Arizona battling in that National League West and the wild card race, and he's out as closer, according to Tori Lovello, the manager, and uh, apparently Lovello says, what, he's going to match up to close out games, but he hasn't so far. No, he hasn't so far. He's gone to Yoshihisa Hirano for the first two save opportunities uh, since that happened. And at this point, uh, it, it's a mixed bag. He got to save the first time. Uh, second time out, he took a loss, gave up a two-run home run in the ninth inning, uh, and took a loss. So uh, maybe Bradley will get the next chance. It's hard to say. Uh, it just depends on how the manager reacts to that two-run home run that, uh, that uh, sent Hirano and uh, the Diamondbacks into the loss column. I know there must be some people who are expecting Archie Bradley to be in the saves mix, but uh, for some reason, Arizona seems to be a little more comfortable with him in a, kind of a more of a multi-inning role. Yeah, they seem to be. And, uh, you know, at this point, if you look at Bradley's performance over the entire year, he's had three saves, but a run average of 3.76. BPV is good at 124. Good Dom, 9.3 strikeouts per nine innings, only 2.6 walks. So pitched very well, but at the same time has been giving up some uh, 
giving up some home runs. Uh, home run per fly rate of 14%, average of one home run, 1.1 every nine innings. So that may perhaps be an issue for the Diamondbacks. I don't know. Uh, be interesting to see how they play this uh, now that uh, Hirano has blown a save and see what they decide to do next. Well, I suppose uh, Arizona must have thought that the humidor was going to help control the home runs, but it really hasn't for a lot of their late-inning closer and setup guys because they all seem to have home run per nine rates over one, or a lot of them do anyways. Uh, um, Hirano was down just below one, but there's one guy in the mix, uh, an interesting guy too, Andrew Chafin, a left-hander, hasn't given up a home run all year. Yeah, it's something to keep in mind. I mean, maybe they'll do a mix and match with Chafin uh, and, and use him pitching against left-handers. But he has pitched very, very well. At this point, a 2.51 ERA. Uh, as you said, no harm runs allowed. A good dom, 9.5 dom. A little bit shaky on control. 4.6 walks per nine innings. Uh, so a command right around two. Uh, and that may be a little bit worrisome for them. But Chafin will undoubtedly get a shot at some point, when, especially when they've got some left-handers coming up in the ninth inning or maybe a one-out a one out save when he's got to face a left-hander. Right now, the uh, Baseball HQ depth chart shows four pitchers in the saves mix, including Boxberger at 30%. I wonder if that's going to change, but right now it really does look like a mix-and-match situation. And uh, I'll close the the, uh, discussion about this by pointing out that Phil Hertz says that uh, coming into this year, it was Archie Bradley that everybody thought was going to be the closer. That didn't work out to be. But uh, Phil says... That sentiment is likely to be reprised in 2019, so maybe if you're playing in a keeper-type format or a dynasty format and whoever has Archie Bradley got rid of him because he wasn't getting saves, maybe this is the time to do a little speculating on Archie Bradley for next year. It might indeed. It might be indeed. I mean, it's one of those situations where um, I I guess what happens is is you figure they signed Boxberger, he pitched very well, and so Bradley never got the shot. And so he certainly could have a shot again next year. Uh, has has pitched very well this year, Bradley has. But uh, for some reason, they've not given him much of a chance in the ninth inning. It's one of those things where you wonder exactly what the dynamic is that's creating that situation. That's a good point. Whenever something like that happens and you're looking at what seems to be an obvious move and the team is not making the obvious move, you wonder, what is it that they know that I don't know? Right. That, that's, a, that's a good question. And uh, it's one to keep in mind, but I would certainly, if I'm in a dynasty league, I think not dump Archie Bradley at this point. He's someone who's, uh, he pitches very well. He's worth hanging on to uh, just in case he winds up as a closer next season. And finally, Nick, uh, more bullpen news. Kenley Jansen returned to the bullpen in Los Angeles after that health scare. He had an irregular heartbeat. And before we say anything else, it's good that he got better from that, whatever the cause of it was. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the Dodgers for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. So, I again, I'm going to assume that Kenley Jansen jumps right into the closer role. But after the uh, previous discussion, maybe I should not be so uh, presumptive. I think in, the, in this case it's probably uh, easier to be presumptive because Kenley Jansen is, uh, is the unquestioned closer in Los Angeles. Uh, he did not make the trip to Colorado because of the irregular heartbeat, and they found that they, that was exacerbated by the altitude. So um, is now back now that they're back in uh, a lower lower altitude. Was back with the team when they uh, played Cincinnati, but no save opportunities. So I don't think there's been a save op since he rejoined the team. But I think we can safely assume that when one comes up, Jansen will get the get the closing shot. Before I let you go, Nick, I don't know if you saw Fred Zinke's column at BaseballHQ.com from A to Zinke, where he did a little bit of a preview of the first 15 picks in next year's draft in straight drafts and snake draft formats. 
And uh, surprise, surprise, Mike Trout not number one. Also, Mike Trout not number two. He's got Mookie Betts and Jose Ramirez ahead of Mike Trout. Did you see that? And what do you think? Well, you know, given the way given the way things have played out this year, uh, you've got two guys who are are, uh, uh, are both MVP MVP candidates in their respective teams. High batting averages, lots of stolen bases, lots of home runs. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Betts and Ramirez go go one two in a lot of drafts. How about if you were drafting? I'd go with Mookie Betts. I think I'd go with Jose Ramirez. Uh, uh, I don't know why I, I think that, but <laughs> in a close kind of situation, to me, I like the fact that Ramirez is eligible at third and second. You know, it's uh, we say it all the time, and I know Mookie Betts is a kind of a special talent, but outfielders are relatively easy to come come across in drafts, and second baseman and third baseman are a little less easy, and a guy who can do both is not easy at all. I think that's true. I, you're, you're correct about that. And so it may be the thinking about as I, you know, my, my initial reaction was to jump on bets. And I, I, I've got both of them on teams this year. Uh, bets has been simply, I think, more consistent than Ramirez has. Ramirez has a tendency to disappear for a week at a time. And, uh, in a, in a, a situation where I'm playing with weekly stats, uh, there are times I've actually taken Ramirez out of the lineup because he sits so poorly for a two week stretch. So uh, Betts, on the other hand, has been very consistent all the way through, and I think that's why I jumped on that. But you're correct about position, and certainly much harder to get a guy with a Jose Ramirez-type talent uh, in the middle infield or in the corner infield. All right, Nick, I'm going to ask Jock about this. Maybe I'll talk with Todd about it as well. It, to me, it's a really interesting question because we're so used to saying Mike Trout, number one, Mike Trout, number one. There was a bit of support for Jose Altuve in, coming into this year. I imagine that's gone by the wayside. It'll be a real interesting future to, uh, to contemplate and then to see how it plays out. Thanks very much for helping us out, Nick. We'll talk to you again in a week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Hey, Jock. Hey, PD. How you doing? Doing fine, thanks. Uh, better than Sean Maniah and probably better than the Oakland A's. Injury news starting with uh, the Oakland A's ace pitcher, Sean Maniah, officially declared out for the season, uh, something that we had pretty much assumed anyway. But he now also projects to miss all of 2019 after he's uh, uh, been diagnosed with a shoulder problem requiring surgery. This is terrible news if you're an Oakland A's fan. This is terrible news if you play for the A's or have anything to do with the club. And if you're a Manaya Keeper League owner, you've got some decisions to make. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've always been personally very mixed on Manaya due to what I, I have perceived as a long history of durability questions and inconsistent performances. Uh, I, frankly, I've always thought he was at best a mid-rotation health risk, and, and that's kind of what he's turning out to be if you look at his numbers this year. I mean, uh, if you're just looking at this year alone, he's got an ERA of 3.59, expected ERA 4.24. He did pitch a career-high 161 innings, but now he's going to be out, uh, it sounds like, through all of 2019, and uh, and you're right. Uh, not a lot of good news for the A's, given their pitching situation, and he's going to have a lot to prove when he returns in 2020. If he returns in 2020, I think we can safely say at this point, because uh, this is a fairly serious situation with the shoulder and he's had uh, some other trouble in the ba in the past as well some of it accidental or fluky but uh, this guy's uh, th this is something that definitely needs to be worried about meanwhile what happens to his innings well lots of bullpen games now for the A's uh, uh, they're getting uh, 
Brad Anderson back uh, today, which is Thursday, September 13th, as we record this. Uh, he's been out with a strained forearm for the last couple of weeks. Trevor Cahill reportedly has a bad back. I think Frankie Montas will get a few innings. Um, Rod Trusdell is talking about Chris Bassett maybe making at least some starts and seeing how long he can go. But they're going to have to to lean almost entirely on on their bullpen and on starters who may only go two to five innings. Uh, they've really fortified that bullpen this summer with the additions of Juris Familia and Fernando Rodney, um, and they're relying a lot on their offense. I, I think the A's making the playoffs is a fun story, and we all know anything can happen in October, but their postseason just – their outlook just doesn't doesn't look that great. And aside from Blake, Blake Trinan, they're going to have to rebuild pretty much that whole pitching staff from scratch this offseason. Of all the names you mentioned there, uh, we pretty much know what Brett Anderson is. We've pretty much seen Trevor Cahill. The intriguing name for me is Frankie Montas. You cover the division for playing time today and playing time tomorrow. Frankie Montas at one point was a pretty highly regarded prospect. Since he's had some starts in the big leagues, he hasn't looked all that great. Is there upside here that could make uh, him an appealing prospect despite his slow start in the big leagues? I agree with you on Frankie Montas. He still throws in the mid nineties. I've seen him have some very good starts. He had a, he had a stretch where he was getting plenty of swing and miss. His secondaries and his control have him, have improved. Uh, he doesn't get enough swing and miss with that kind of stuff, but he's only 25. He had some health issues a couple of years ago. I think he had some ribs removed and it set him back almost an entire season. Um, if you're looking at a, a, a real dark horse for the A's down the stretch and, and maybe in the next season, it'll be Frankie Montas. In the meantime, you mentioned, and the Baseball HQ Playing Time Today coverage also mentioned, that the uh, A's have been dabbling around with a sort of a Tampa Bay Rays kind of uh, throw a guy out there for that first inning and then and then mix and match with bullpen and three or four inning guys and so forth to try to make up for the fact that after you get past the Tampa starters, Blake Snell and uh, whoever else they have, they're pretty short on uh, starting pitching as well, and they figured out a way to manage through it. I've seen statistics that say they're the best pitching staff in in the league and the second best in all of baseball since the all-star break when they started doing this opener they called it in earnest is there a possibility that uh, that oakland given its budgetary constraints and, and those ongoing problems that they have and their willingness uh, historically to be if not trail breakers at least willing to try anything once could they be the second team in the in baseball to really go whole hog like tampa has well, the problem with the A's face in 2019 is a lot of the names that have really made their pitching staff terrific in the second half are all free agents. They're guys like Fernando Rodney and guys like uh, Sean Kelly and uh, and Juris uh, Familia, all of whom they picked up around the trade deadline. Um, like I said, that they, they've got uh, uh, Blake Trinan, who has all of a sudden developed into the, the the best closer in the American League, maybe even in all of baseball. And they've got uh, Lou uh, Trivino, who's who's not going to be a free agent either. But besides those names, they're going to have to rebuild that, build that bullpen again. And, and with bullpen vo- volatility being what it is, that's not going to be an easy thing to do. Easier, though, to find bullpen pitchers than it is to find seven-inning starters, one would think. And uh, they've certainly proved themselves to be at least somewhat adept in figuring that out. And the intrinsic value in pitchers like that, we call them Lima pitchers or Lima middle relievers, is that they're relatively easy to find compared to compared to top-level starters or even sort of number three starters. Oh, there's zero doubt that there is a definite lack of, of, of 
top-shelf starting pitching right now, and the A's aren't the only team facing it. Uh, even in that division, the Angels are facing it, the Rangers are facing it. Um, but the other side of that uh, that coin is that um, um, basically, if you look at last year, I think Oakland, when we say Oakland's had proven success in building a bullpen, they were 25th in overall bullpen ERA last year out of 30 major league teams. In contrast, the Angels were ninth, and I think that's pretty much swapped around this year. I think the A's might be number three or four in bullpen ERA. So it goes back to my point that bullpen ERA is, is bullpen uh, pitchers are awfully volatile. You have to get awfully lucky and you have to have great timing. They had terrific timing in trading Trine, and I'm, I'm pretty sure the Washington Nationals wouldn't have traded Blake Trine had they felt he was going to develop into what he's developed into. And now, aside from Trinan and, like I said, Lou Triveno, they're going to have to go out and find those guys again this year. And that's not always something that can be guaranteed year in and year out. But for the stretch this year and maybe into a playoff run, uh, kind of all bets are off. They'll Everybody will just be doing what they can do. Yeah, exactly. And uh, hats off to the A's. I mean, they did a wonderful job in June picking up all of those, those bullpen names that were being dropped dropped by teams or just given away by teams. And if you look at the teams that, are, that were giving them away, you talk about the Mets giving away Familia and, and Minnesota giving away Rodney. Um, there were a lot more sellers than buyers this year, and I think that helped the A's out a little bit as well. Is there a possibility that guys like Trevino and Rodney and Familia take on a little added value as potential vulture win guys and you know short-run strikeout guys that could replace sort of number six starters in in uh, fantasy teams lineups profitably oh sure it's a crapshoot but if if you're going to go that route and and it's not a bad route to go given the unpredictability of wins you got to go for guys on winning teams with good offenses like the a's uh, have and uh, and those are names that uh, those are those are good suspects right there the Angels got some similar bad news about Nick Tropiano. He's been ruled out officially for the rest of this season. What else is new? How are they going to handle their pitching issues in Anaheim? Well, the, the, the good news right now for uh, um, the Angels is that uh, um, they have Matt Shoemaker back, actually, for two straight starts, and he hasn't gone on the DL. <laughs> um, he's pitched 10 innings, given up three runs, 7-2 to two strikeout to walk. His velocity's up. Um, so he, he's substituted a little bit for Tropiano and, and, and Felix Pena is a, is a real underrated guy. He's now reeled off six consecutive starts or six of six innings or less, um, giving up, uh, three runs or less in all six. Uh, he's really stating a case for the A's for, for, I'm sorry, the A's, uh, for the Angels back of the rotation next year. And this is the this is a team that really needs this kind of news because like the A's, they don't have any top of the rotation arms entering uh, next year, particularly with uh, Shohei Otani um, seemingly projected to, to undergo Tommy John surgery. He's not going to be available next year. So they need a whole ton of back of the rotation arms. And as you've suggested this segment, uh, they're also going to have to take a look at uh, getting bullpen arms to, to supplement these guys. So uh, at least a little bit of good news for the Angels now in September. Felix Pena, six consecutive starts of six innings or more. Uh, that's got to be a pleasant surprise, that's for sure. In Boston, the Red Sox got Chris Sale back from what they were calling shoulder inflammation. But, uh, Jock, 
I saw a lot of people who seemed pretty suspicious that what they did was a, a Los Angeles Dodgers kind of thing to just put them on the DL for 10 days to give them a week off, basically, and get them ready for the uh, playoffs and the stretch run. Uh, what can his owners expect down the stretch, given the uh, fact that Boston's probably going to want to try to treat this guy with kid gloves because they they may have another month of baseball to play after the season's over? Yeah, you know, I've already lost track of uh, how many how many games the Red Sox have won. I think they were on some sort of record pace. I'm not sure. I'm not sure for what, but uh, they've already clinched their playoff spots. I, I I think they're a prohibitive home field advantage favorite uh, in the American League. So they're fortunate in that respect. They have the luxury of going going slowly with Sale to work him into postseason shape. Uh, his owner sure can't count on wins and strikeouts or even many uh, uh, or anything else down the stretch because they're really looking at the postseason right now. So, Jock, if we assume that they are going to continue handling uh, Chris Sale with, shall we say, care and loving attention, uh, somebody's got to get any innings that he's giving up. If they do turn the innings over to somebody else, is there anything there that's got fantasy interest for us? Yeah, all they're doing now is looking at finishing the season, and they've got guys who perform well uh, in in swingman long relief roles. Uh, Hector Velasquez has a a 3.29 ERA, about a run and a half better than his expected ERA, but he's done it through 77 innings, and it includes seven starts. He's been a swingman all season. Now he's part of a six-man rotation. Stephen Wright is back, uh, similar to Vasquez, uh, a three a 3.00 ERA and about a run and a half difference between that and his expected ERA. He's done that through 45 innings, including four starts. Brian Johnson has worked uh, in that capacity. None of these names are really notable or, or dependable, but they're going to get the Red Sox through September, the innings they need to eat. Roster expansion works for the Red Sox. In Chicago, Jose Abreu was out for a while with some testicular surgery. Ouch. And uh, he's finally back off the DL and in Chicago, apparently a lot sooner than they they expected and certainly than we expected. Should we be thinking about getting him straight back into the lineup or is he going to be treated with kid gloves as well? Yeah, no. Abreu wants to play and he was really banging it uh, in August. He was having his best month. I think he was hitting 338, seven home runs and 71 at bats before he went on the DL. And he got three hits in his first game back, so I think he needs to be active. Uh, Rick Green wrote this one up in playing time today. He seems to think that Matt Davidson is going to lose some playing time with uh, with Abreu's return. And in fact, Davidson hasn't played since Abreu returned, so I think Rick seems to be on this one. Jose Abreu is an underappreciated guy. How many years has he been in the league? And it's like every year is the same as the one before, super productive. And yet he's, he's perceived as not having this big upside. So he kind of falls down into that fourth round area, fifth round area in the, in the auctions. It's kind of the guy you look for when all the guys you really wanted were, uh, were bought out from under you. I think Jose Abreu is a, a real treasure for, for fantasy players. I agree. And this is the first year he's not going to get 600 at bats over the past three years. Uh, he's been terrific. He's been unheralded. I think part of it has to do with the team he's been on. He's, he's the heart of that offense, uh, right now. Uh, this hasn't been a great year for him. He's hit 270, which will be his lowest batting average, uh, through his career, but the production is still there. 22 homers, 78 RBIs. And, and let's face it, everyone's batting average has fallen off a little bit this year. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I really like Jose Abreu. 
On the other side of the injury coin, Minnesota, the Twins are, of course, having a really miserable season, especially with regards to injury to players that they were really counting on to drive their offense, and uh, probably nobody more in that position. Well, maybe Buxton, but Miguel Sano, they were really hoping that this guy was going to be their primary power source and that they might make another run towards the playoffs. And that hasn't happened for all kinds of reasons, not just Miguel Sano, but other injuries. Their pitching hasn't been good. Sano was carted off the field on September 4th. He had an awkward slide, and they called it a deep lower left leg bruise, and he hasn't played since. And I thought Matt Cederholm at BaseballHQ.com in the Big Hurt column, his injury analysis column, had some interesting comments about this. Yeah, you're right. That's the same leg. Uh, uh, Sano's uh, bruise is, is occurring in the same leg in which he had a titanium rod, insert, rod inserted in November last year to treat a stress reaction, uh, which is also a concern. Now we're speculating right now. Maybe, maybe the maybe there is a real bad contusion or bruise to take a uh, can take a week more uh, to heal. But uh, this leg is a problem, and 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 also Sano's weight. He came to camp overweight. Uh, this is he's an interesting guy because the power is still there the contact is still really subpar um like a lot of twins you mentioned Byron Buxton he's going to be at a crossroads next year it'll be interesting to see what the what Minnesota does in the off season well, I think you hit the nail on the head, Jock, when you mentioned the contact difficulties because that has been a bugaboo for uh, Miguel Sano pretty much since he came up to the big leagues. On the flip side of it, he's always been able to draw walks. And, and again, this year he's up around 11%. He's been as high as 16 in his career uh, back a few years ago, but very consistent uh, 11% walk rate, which kind of offsets the contact issues a bit, but he's never hit 60% contact. So that's 40% strikeouts. That's that's really troublesome even for a guy who has his prodigious power yeah to his credit in in his in his four year career i should say four partial years because he, there's always been something with him uh, but um he's hit over 260 in two of those years while making sub 60% contact which is is pretty amazing i don't know if that'll keep up but uh nowadays uh given the way batting averages have dropped if if Sano could could produce that 35 40 home run power that people have been expecting from a long time he could hit 240 240 and with that with that double digit walk rate you're right be a very productive fantasy player and in leagues with on base percentage you know who he reminds me of of course is joey gallo same kind of thing sub 60 percent contact but a 13 14 percent walk rate the last couple of years uh which reinforces his on-base percentage. It doesn't do anything for his batting average, but that's the price you pay for the power. And uh, like I said, in on-base leagues, much more attractive proposition. Yeah, yeah. And and to, to like I said, to Sano's credit, his batting averages has been historically a lot better than, than Joey Gallo's. Uh, that's an interesting situation the Rangers got because Joey Gallo struggles to hit over 200, and Sano hasn't had any problems doing that until this year. Uh, he's hitting 202, which is well below his 245 career batting average. But uh, yeah, this, these are interesting times right now. Especially for the Twins, they've had injuries and other problems. Buxton's been in and out all year. Uh, Jorge Polanco missed half a year with that uh, PED thing. I think Eddie Rosario's now in and out of the lineup because he's got some kind of quad problem. So it, it's really difficult to figure out where the playing time is here for this team, but we're seeing an awful lot of guys, yeah, the kind of guys you really wouldn't want to see on your fantasy roster, and especially not on a big league field. 
Yeah, you got Robbie Grossman and Ahiri Adrianza and Logan Forsythe, Jake Cave. They're all getting almost everyday playing time right now for the Twins. Uh, one intriguing name that I like that they just got from the Yankees, but of course now he has a back injury, is uh, is Tyler Austin. Uh, I don't think his power is in question. He's another guy whose contact rate needs to come up a little bit. But uh, it would seem to me with all the Twins issues going forward, he might have a chance for regular playing time uh, both in September and looking forward into 2019 uh, if he stays healthy. So, um, you know, what do you know? Another twin with uh, with question marks. Another twin with question marks. We could put that as the headline of the story, I think. Uh, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Okay, PD. See ya. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat for Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have the Minor League Minute and Pitcher matchups coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield looks at some mulligans for 2018, including Chris Archer, Ken Giles, and Joey Votto. In From A to Zinke, columnist Fred Zinke looks at the first round of the 2019 draft. And in The Big Hurt, injuries analyst Matthew Cederholm looks at issues affecting Miguel Sano, Corey Seager, Sean Manaya, and Jose Iglesias. And that's just a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com, down the stretch, before the season, and all the time. It's content and tools you can use to improve your teams and to win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have our weekend pitcher matchups report. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Atlanta right-handed pitching prospect Kyle Wright is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Atlanta Braves haven't won a postseason playoff series since they beat the Houston Astros in the NLDS in 2001. But that run of futility might finally be coming to an end in 2018. One recent call-up that could help clinch the NLEs for the Braves is 22-year-old right-hander Kyle Wright. Wright was called up when rosters expanded at the beginning of the month after an impressive season in the minors. Wright comes after hitters with three-plus offerings, including a 94-97 mile-an-hour fastball, a slider, and a plus-hard curveball that might be his best pitch. Wright also features a changeup that shows potential but remains a work in progress. Wright shows above-average fastball command but can at times struggle to find the strike zone and walk 3.5 batters per nine in 2018. Prior to being called up, Wright was 8-9 with a 3.46 ERA with 51 walks and 133 strikeouts and a 230 batting average against and 138 innings pitched between double and triple A. Wright has only logged three innings, all in relief since joining the Braves, but could see a spot start or two if the Braves clinch the division title early. Fantasy owners looking for a hidden gem heading into 2019 should tuck away the Braves' Kyle Wright, who has the potential to be a solid number three starter down the road. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes call-up reports on Detroit right-hander Spencer Turnbull and outfielder Kristen Stewart, as well as Toronto right-hander David Polino. 
And in the eyes have it, Baseball HQ scouting analyst Chris Blessing looks through his scouting notebook and files reports on Cincinnati right-hander Tony Santian and Miami outfielders Monty Harrison and Brian Miller. These days, knowing the prospects can mean the difference in many of our leagues, and BaseballHQ.com gives you the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for pitcher matchups. The matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero, with starts rated higher than plus 1.0 rated as strong starts, while starts rated minus 0.51 or worse are rated weak. Those in between are judgment calls. This weekend, we have two genuinely terrific marquee matchups. Arizona right-hander Zach Greinke is in Houston to face right-hander Justin Verlander. And Mets right-hander Jacob deGrom is in Boston to match up against left-hander Chris Sale. What a matchup. Looking at these and other weekend matchups, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Two matchups pit pitchers with strong start matchup ratings against one another this weekend. Fresh off his Major League record 26th straight start of three or fewer runs allowed, Jacob deGrom takes a matchup rating of 193 into Fenway Park for an interleague matchup against our maximum matchup man, Chris Sale. Sale has a matchup rating of 301, but he was something of a preliever or opener in his most recent start, pitching just the first inning in his return from the disabled list. Sale is scheduled to go only three innings this Sunday, so let's look to Houston for our marquee matchup. Weather permitting, Houston will host Arizona. On Sunday, Astros ace Justin Verlander has a matchup rating of 225. He faces the Snakes' Zach Grenke, who has a matchup rating of 072. As of this recording, Grenke's D-backs are eight games over 500, good for third place in the National League West, three and a half games behind the division-leading Rockies, and four and a half games out of the second wildcard slot. Verlander's Astros are 38 games over 500, three games ahead of the second-place A's in the American League West, and would have home field advantage over every team except the Red Sox in the postseason. Versus right-handers, Houston is 24 games over 500, and Arizona is 7 games over 500. Against teams over 500, the Astros are 3 games over 500, and the Diamondbacks are 3 games under 500. Over the past 10 and 20 games, Houston has the best records in Major League Baseball, and Arizona is 4 games under 500 in each case. Advantage, Astros. 34-year-old right-hander Zach Grenke has lost nearly a mile and a half per hour of velocity off of his fastball from last season, but has not lost any of his effectiveness. In fact, he slightly improved upon his ERA, whip, and command ratio of strikeouts per walk. Grenke's BPV, or base performance value, is 134 this season, only a small drop-off from his BPV of 143 last year. In 2017, Grenke had a peak U.S. dominant 5 in his lone start against the Astros. In 2018, he posted a peak U.S. decent 2. In 2017, Grenke's peak U.S. dominant to disaster ratio was 50% dominant to 22% disaster. In 2018, it's 47% dominant to 13% disaster. In 15 road starts this season, Grenke has 8 peak U.S. doms and 2 peak U.S. disasters. That's a peak U.S. dominant-to-disaster ratio of 53% dominant to 13% disaster. In his past 10 road starts, Grenke has 7 peak U.S. dominant outings and only 1 peak U.S. disaster, for a ratio of 70% dominant to 10% disaster. 
after posting full-month BPVs ranging from 120 to 167 in the first four months of this season, Grenke fell below 100 with a 97 in August. He and his team both seem to be fading a bit down the stretch. 35-year-old right-hander Justin Verlander has put up an incredible run of full-month BPVs ranging from 148 to 236 this season. BaseballHQ.com's Pitcher Buyer's Guide analyst Stephen Nickrand wrote on September 8 that Verlander has been the American League's most skilled starting pitcher in the second half, with a dominance rate of 13.6 strikeouts per nine, a control rate of 1.8 walks per nine, for a command ratio of 7.5 strikeouts per walk, and a BPV of 204. Overall, Verlander's 2018 ERA is below 3, his whip is below 1, and he's putting up career bests in first pitch strike rate, dominance rate, control rate, command ratio, and BPV. Zach Grenke should be good this Sunday, and Justin Verlander should be even better. Our minimum matchup ratings show 15 starting pitchers in the weak start range, including 6 with matchup ratings below minus 1. In a repeat of last weekend, both Baltimore starters are on the bad list. This time, load your lineups with White Sox hitters in Camden Yards. Yankee hitters should also tee off in Toronto. In Cleveland, Indians batters should best Detroit's mound duo. And Dodger dingers should continue to flow freely in St. Louis. As of this recording, L.A. has homered in 20 consecutive games and would tie the franchise record of 24 if they stay hot through Sunday. Check our site to get updated matchup information every day. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has our weekend pitcher matchups during the season here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it's our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, here's reason number 362 that you should think about attending First Pitch Arizona. Wait a minute. This just in, the 2018 First Pitch Arizona Fantasy Baseball Seminar is sold out. I hope you got your registration in on time. And if you didn't, well, it's time to start putting aside for 2019. And we'll see you there. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd. And I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, Patrick. Well, last week we talked about guys uh, who are in the top 15 uh, first-rounders by ADP at at the NFBC in 2018, and some of them are probably not going to be there next year, and some of them are probably going to be there next year. But I thought we could follow up this week by looking at some guys who are having terrific seasons this year and who could move up and replace some of those guys in the top 15 for next year. And I think uh, you'll agree with me that the first name on that list probably has to be Jose Ramirez of Cleveland. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, our our colleague Fred Zinke wrote a, a nice piece, you know, sort of a companion. I, I think it wasn't purposeful, but he wrote a piece for HQ this week about his top 15 in, the, uh, in, in, in next year's draft, kind of trying to predict the next year's top 15. And he had Ramirez in the top couple of three and, it's hard to disagree at this point. Now, the thing is, and I didn't, I didn't, I, I haven't done the research yet on Ramirez, but um, part of what he's doing, I mean, he's fantastic numbers, but there's also some volume involved. He hasn't been hurt. I don't know exactly where he's going to end up with plate appearances, but it's in a, it's in a range where you can't assume he's going to get that same number again. So you, you just have to back off 
And actually, he, he he's going to get uh, just a few more than last year, especially if if uh, if Cleveland sort of gives them a little bit of a rest down the stretch. Although they'll probably play him just because they want to get him used to second base for the playoffs with Donaldson there. But the point being, you got to back off plate appearances with with guys that get over 650, 660. They may not repeat that number. So, but still, the the rate of stats and his stolen base rate is so is so good that he's going to continue to run. Whether he gets 30-plus bags next year, I don't know. But there's really no reason not to assume that what we're seeing is real, especially because his batting average is down. You know, next year, you know, we're going to predict him. We're going we're, we're gonna to project him for a higher batting average than he finishes this year because the previous two seasons, he was well over 300. This year, he's going to be in the 280s. So we're going to project it with a higher average next year just because that's the way that weighted averages work. On the other hand, Todd, when I look at Jose Ramirez, and I hear what you're saying, but his at-bats for the last three years, 565, 585, he'll finish somewhere around 585, 600 again this year, and he seems to be establishing kind of a track record as a very durable guy. We could say the same thing about Mike Trout. He's durable right up until the moment that he isn't. But on the topic of batting average, I think this is an interesting point. He's walking twice as often this year as he did last year, twice as often. And I know that that doesn't usually reflect in batting average, uh, although it uh, certainly reduces the amount of uh, at-bats a guy has, but it does have very positive effects on power. At least that's what I found in my own research. Uh, Is the trade-off of, you know, 35 points of batting average offset by the fact that this guy's probably going to end up hitting 40 or 45 home runs? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And, it also get it, it, the on base is improved a tad, and that's going to help the stolen bases. Yeah, I don't know. For, I'm, I apologize. Actually, I thought I thought Ramirez was closer to the six sixty six seventy plate appearance point right now, and once you're up in that six seventy six eighty range, it's real uh, sketchy to assume that's going to happen again. Yeah, you're right. He's he's consistently, and he's going to be right around the same one hundred and fifty two games that he always plays. Which means you know he doesn't he hasn't been injured and the Indians give him you know a day off every other week along with the regular days off. So yeah, the the, play to, the the playing time isn't as much of an issue with Ramirez as it might be with one of his teammates who we may talk about in a moment. But yeah, as far as the the new approach goes and the whatnot, absolutely, I will take even especially because uh, you know our, our friend Gene McCaffrey, I think he tweeted it last night. Yeah, you see you know tongue in cheek something to the effect of. Apparently, 230 is the new is the new 250. So you know when I say a 280 batting average, averages are down, and so that 280, you know, we, we, we may have to, you know, re- rejigger what we think the norm is, and you know that 280 could be what we normally think of a 290 average because averages are down, as you know, relative to the field. So uh, we you know we don't don't make that adjustment. You know, it, it gets kind of gets built in to the projections, but you know, from a fantasy point of view, you know, this year's 280 could have been last year's 285, 290. Again, on the other hand, when you look at the other potential guys who are going to be floating around in that upper level of the first round or maybe the high second round, batting average, there's quite a difference. We we looked, we talked about Mookie Betts last week as an obvious potential first overall pick, but certainly a top two or three guy. Uh, Fred Zinke had him first, and uh, his batting average is 340. 
And when you combine the average with a lot of at-bats, as, as Mookie Betts tends to have, a few, uh, little bit of a, a hiccup this year because of injury, but a three forty batting average can carry you know, a pretty good share of your load in the category all by himself. Yeah, and you know there it's it's a, it's an it's an approach, it's a philosophy. Do you want to get your counting stats early and try to try to make up batting average late? A lot of people will take a high batting average early so they can then go and get the high stolen base or the high power guy later with a lower batting average. I still, you know, I I talk about how how variable batting average is and how tightly bunched batting average is. So a lot of time, I, I kind of don't care about it as much just because you can get luckier in batting average than you can in any other category. The flip side is also the case. You can get unlucky in it too. So you, you are rolling the dice. But it's an interesting, you know, it, it is an interesting category philosophically as far as how you want to approach. Now, uh, thinking, you know, one of the guys you may look at again, you know, a guy like DJ LeMayhew is a really nice guy to target a little bit later. But if he's no longer in Colorado, take him, you know, he's no longer a guy that, you you know, all right, I, I need to make up some batting average. I'm not going to get killed in my counting stats with LeMayhew. I'll grab him. He's not nearly as attractive out of Colorado. So have to sort of rethink this, the, the strategy, so to speak. But, yeah, batting average is kind of an interesting uh sort of fulcrum when you sort of design your draft strategy. How do you want to go about approaching it? Because there are different ways to do it. Another guy who's on uh, on uh, Fred Zinke's list, and he's on my list of top performers this year, and he's going to be taken very high next year, and I wonder how high is J.D. Martinez of Boston. He's currently second among hitters in baseball HQ value, just behind bets. On the strength of his 40 home runs, he's got 120-plus uh, RBIs. He's going to probably finish with 145, something like that. 331 batting average, 401 on base. Problem here, of course, is that he doesn't steal a whole ton of bases. Uh, how high up do you think J.D. Martinez should or, and will be taken in 2019? Yeah, he was a first-rounder for me uh, coming into the season. You know, we, we talk about ADP. We, you know, the A stands for average. So anybody who was 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th that we talked about last week, you know, was picked, you know, 5th or 6th. It was also picked 17th or 18th. So J.D. was probably just out of the top 15, which means he was taken by some in, you know, some around 18th or 19th. The reason I had him so high is, is you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a park factor honk, it, it just, uh, Fenway was just built for him with the wall and everything else. I just felt that he, as good as his batting average and power was elsewhere, he was he, he was just going to play in Fenway. It was just going to work for him. And at least, you know, I'm going to say so far it has. The year's almost over. At least it, it did come to fruition this season, and he's not leaving Fenway. So where the extra oomph for me and, and Martinez and ranking come from is, I don't know, if he'll hit 330 again, but 300, 310, 315 is probably the baseline to look at as far as average goes and I don't think everybody expected him to hit 300 this season just because you know previous batting averages may not have been so high the power's obviously there so yeah he's uh without the speed he's not a top five guy but absolutely he's the sort of guy that you you you, you, you if you're if you can get him a little bit later sometimes you like to pair up guys at the wheel you get him for power, and you grab someone else in the early second round, mid-second round that contributes speed, and you add them up together, and you get yourself a really nice start. 
You mentioned earlier when we were talking about Jose Ramirez, he has a teammate who's having a pretty decent year as well in Francisco Lindor, and Francisco Lindor probably ticketed for a very high draft pick as well this year. How does his season 2018, do you think, going to reflect on his position for next year? Yeah, he's the guy that, I mean, I know I know he's, uh, you know, pacing for another 700 plate appearance season, and I wanted, one of the things I want to look up is how many players the past uh, 10 or so years have had consecutive 700 plate appearance seasons. I'm pretty sure we can count them on one hand. I wouldn't be surprised if we can count them on one thumb. And Lundeer may even be the first that's that's done it. So I know he's going to have close to 700 plate appearances for three straight years, but it's still... There's no ups. There's no. There's no upside to that. It's real dangerous. That if if you're paying for the full price, if you project him for six eighty, six ninety, and all he has is a is a is a dumb luck DL stint because he you know he had his thumb stealing or, or or something to that effect, you know he can still you know still have a very good season, but you're paying full value. There's no upside as far as games go. Which is always dangerous, but you know the counter is well. Dizzle, he's done it for three straight years. Well, yeah, he has, but as you kind of alluded to before, sometimes people do things until they don't. You know, Mike Trout and Jose Altuve were two of the more uh, durable players until this year. So that's the danger with Lindor. It's it, he's got fantastic skills, but there's also some volume built in there. So that that's kind of the catch. I mean, he's going to have. You know, 33 homers last year. He's already at 34, so he'll get a couple more this year. Had a little, you know, he, the 23 steals is kind of uh, a few more than he's had. So, you know, take away the uh, a little bit of volume, and we're still talking about a first-round player. So, um, and the other thing with Ramirez and 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 Lindor both, and this is something Fred talks about in his piece, is when you think about the team context. I see no reason to con- be concerned about the Indians and, and run scoring. I th- maybe the bottom of the order suspect, but it's suspect this year too. These two guys are still going to be you know, high run producers along with their with their great slash line. So I don't know where in the first round Lindor will fall, but I think he's without a doubt a top 10 pick for next year. Something that came up when I was discussing this earlier in the show with Harold Nichols is uh, do we have to give uh, Jose Ramirez a bit of an extra... Uh, valuation or a bit more push towards the top of the table because he has this second and third base eligibility versus Betts and Martinez and uh, guys like that who are outfielders. Uh, there's always a, a pretty good supply of outfielders, but it's pretty rare to have somebody who can fill two relatively scarce positions and give you that roster flexibility and give you know, all that production as well. Yeah, we've, we've talked about this a lot, and uh, I think we both come to the same conclusion. Now, first, I'm not I'm not concerned about the, the the scarcity the position scarcity aspect second third short etc um, but I do really like the multiple position eligibility in general and I think I may, may correct me if I'm wrong but I think we both kind of come to the same conclusion that the player himself the stats are the stats they are what they are but what he allows you to do with the rest of your team is where the value comes in. So his numbers aren't, in a vacuum, his numbers aren't worth more, but you should pay more for that player because he helps your team in general. Now, I don't I don't know how much. Maybe I can do a study to kind of generalize it 
it is more of a, of a, of a sort of a touchy feely sort of thing. And, 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 you know, how much more do I think I can put on my roster? But, you know, you know, a 30, $33 player, I think you can go plus three, maybe even plus four bucks. Cause I do think over the course of a, a you know, 162 game or whatever you want to call it, 26, 27 week season, you're going to be able to fortify your roster, you know, flip Ramirez between second and third and get the, get the most most useful player at the other position in a number of times that it's probably going to give you three, four, five more dollars worth of stats, not on Ramirez's line, but in your team's line. While you were uh, uh, discussing that, I went through um, uh, a little list I have of 700 plate appearance guys, and uh, since 2009, you're looking at about maybe 18 or so with uh, back-to-back 700s. All right. Well, it's more than I thought. So, but but even so, you know, the point still stands. Sure. Yeah. It's you know it's it's I know that they're wearing these oven mitts now just to steal, reducing their chances. But you know, you know the position he plays, etc. You know, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna project him you know, for 680 plate appearances. He's done it for three straight years. But in my mind, if if it's him and somebody else. You know, I'm going to look at their numbers and say, well, you know what? This guy has a little bit more built-in upside. You know, maybe it's him and Ramirez. Maybe I'm looking at Lindor and Ramirez at the, at, at, for my next pick. I'm going to have Ramirez for fewer plate appearances. I'm probably going to go to Ramirez just because if he happens to play five or six more games than, than normal, then he's going to be above Lindor. And if Lindor misses five or six games more than normal... It even is a bigger difference, so it could be it could be a tiebreaker when you know, if it's a similar you know I'm not gonna not gonna jump somebody over a guy like Lindor, but um, I do think you have to take into consideration because there is less up there's less playing time upside with Lindor than almost any player in the league. One of the stories of the year so far has been uh, Trevor Story of Colorado. He came out of uh, just nowhere in 2016 as a rookie. He had 27 home runs and eight steals in only 370 some at bats. Had a 3.41 batting average. Then he kind of slumped last year, and and he became last year's bum a, a little bit, as our friend Gene McCaffrey likes to describe it. This year, he's kind of putting the two things together. He's over 500 at bats, which he was last year, and he seems to be banging home runs and stealing bases like they're going out of style. And I wonder, are you confident now that Story has kind of righted his ship and that he's a, a bona fide first-round contender? Uh, yes, and I, I, I need to do the research. I, I have it written down somewhere. And what my thing about Story over the years has been his two-strike approach, it's, it's still swing as hard as I can in case I hit the ball. And I've always kind of said if he ever changes that approach and you know shortens up or just tries to make contact with two strikes – it's going to be a, a whirlwind of difference just because if there's any park that all you want to do is put the ball in play, it's Coors Field. So he's still going to run into the same power. But if he could reduce the strikeouts and become a better two-strike hitter, I, I thought that what we saw in 2016 could end up being real. And I don't recall the exact story, but sometime in June, there was a, there was a story to that effect. I don't want to keep saying story. <laughs> I, I don't, it sounds like I'm making a pun. There was a, there was a piece to that effect. So I want to re, I want to track that down and sort of look at the metrics that that are being looked at. The two strike approach, his batting average. You know what is he, what he does. O two one two two two, and see if it actually has carried through 
And if indeed he, it, it is a change in approach, I think it's all the more chance that we're seeing is real. The question will be the steals. And steals, you know, you have to be fast. You have to be savvy. You know, you also need opportunity. And this is, you know, the numbers guy, and this is more narrative or anecdotal. But what I found is there's certain seasons where, where everything is going right. The player just, he also runs. It's, it's, it's a frame of mind. It's just confidence. It's everything else. So to me, the, the bigger concern with story is the 25 bags. I think that you have to sort of hedge back. And I think he's got the stuff to steal, you know, 10 or 15 or, or you know, 17 mid-teen steals, which is probably enough to put him into the first round with, with everything else. I just think, you know, if he... You know, with 25 now, these guys love round numbers. It wouldn't shock me if he, you know, he, he runs to try to get to 30 just because these guys love these round numbers. I just, I have, you know, I, I'll probably project him in the mid-teens next year. But again, with everything else, that's enough to put him into the first round. Uh, it's it's a, still a wheel pick for me because he's only done, you know, I say only done it this one year. But, you know, the, it's still, any even if he, even if I do see a change in approach, it's not a guarantee that he maintains it. You'd like to think he will, but you never know. You get an early slump, and 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 you change. You know things things weird things happen. So, like what I'm seeing, uh, I kind of like him on the wheel to try to. Uh, you know, I don't know that I want to jump him into the top ten. Well, we need to move on, but I'll just say to anybody who's looking at Trevor's story, compare 2016 to 2018. And they are essentially exactly the same season, except with more at bats this year. But on a pro, on a per uh, at bat basis, he's he's really doing something very special this year that he was also doing in 2016, and that seems to augur well for a re- uh, a repeat. But on the other hand, maybe it's one of those even year odd year things that nobody believes in, but always seem to happen. The one thing I will point out, though, everything is pretty pretty much the same from 2016 to this year except for one thing he's striking out like 10% fewer plate appearances and i think that's that's huge it goes to that contact thing that you were mentioning how about Javier Baez another guy kind of came out of nowhere uh, i was going to say out of left field but i'm not sure about that but probably at some point and uh, all of a sudden he's definitely top 15 this year by hitter value the question is would you gamble on him as a first rounder next year yeah, again, the steals, and I think what we're seeing, I think we've talked about Baez in that what I'm seeing out of Baez is skills, skills, you know, they're not stagnant. Players have a, a range, we're talking about range of performance. There's a range, a skill set is also a range. And he's just performing, I think, at the top of his skill set across the board. Sometimes that happens, and, and this, and you get a Javi Baez type year. Other times you're at the bottom of your skill set, and it's really not an off year, it's just you are what you are, but the skills were just at the bottom. And most years, you know, this skill's a little high, this skill's a little low, and everything averages out in the middle. I just think we're seeing everything everything coming through. He's getting a, a little bit more playing time. Now, we, we, I know we've talked about the fact that uh, he sits more than most, you know, superstars, and that's just what Joe Madden does. Whether he changes that next year or not, who knows. But, you know, so, so to me, there's there's... That's Baez has got the built-in upside. If Joe Madden says, "Wow, this guy's my best player," I, I, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't put Tommy Lastella in for him as much as I'm doing. I need Baez out there, and maybe he's even saying that, you know, with the right now the the Brewers are are on the Cubs' heels, and maybe Madden's saying, "Darn, 
Maybe if I played Baez a little more, I'd have a little bit of bigger cushion. Or he could be saying the rest is helping and the Brewers would be ahead if I haven't given Baez this rest. I don't know. I don't want to try to get into Joe Madden's head. But anyway, so the point being there is some upside with Baez. And yeah, he's another, to me, what we're seeing is real. And he's a first-round talent. And again, with the steals, whether he he repeats the 20 or not, I don't know. But I think he's got a pretty good chance of it. And the steals are right now what's important to sort of, you know, get you that little bit of an extra push. 28% uh, go rate for Javier Baez, just a bit uh, higher than Trevor Story. He's going at 25%. And as players age, they tend to get a little more reluctant about that kind of thing as well. The uh, the caveat with uh, Javier Baez, and um, I'll just lay it on the line here, he just doesn't walk enough to suit me. And to me, that makes right. him very vulnerable to pitchers who are going to realize, I don't have to give this guy anything to hit. Now, maybe he's Vladimir Guerrero, not junior, senior, and he <laughs> can hit it even off his shoe tops or over his head, but we're going to we're going to have to suspect that pitchers are going to catch on to the fact that this guy has very poor plate discipline and they're going to be able to exploit that. No, you're right. They're, 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 again, if we're talking about upside, uh, down, you know, upside and downside, he has that, that, that downside. He, because of the, because he doesn't walk, he's more vulnerable to slumps and the whatnot. So you're absolutely right as far as risk reward. He may a guy. He may be a guy that we're talking about is too risky for both of us just because of that. Because everybody's going to be, uh, you know, looking at the numbers and uh, as a whole and not doing the underlying, you know, d- d- deeper dive. And we may say, you know, at, at, at this price. He's too rich for either of us because there's just too much downside where he's going. As a first-rounder, for sure. And I suspect that next year that a lot of fantasy owners are going to look at it the same way. And I I think that Javier Baez is not going to be a first-round pick in a lot of drafts. I think he's going to go sort of high second-round, mid-second-round because of all of these caveats. He might not play as much as some guys. He doesn't walk as much as some guys. He actually has a fairly low fly ball rate for a guy that you want to have hitting home runs for you. And we can say the same thing about the next player on our list here. Christian Yelich is having a terrific year uh, in Milwaukee, a $40 campaign according to Baseball HQ's valuation method. But again, 22% fly ball rate. It's, this is one of the lowest fly ball rates I've ever heard of for a guy who's approaching 30 home runs. Yeah, well, he was hitting in the 20s in Miami. You know, he's another park factor guy, and you know, I, I'm not going to say I expected him to do this well. I did expect him to do well. I think I had him on a third round, pegged him in a, as a third round player this season, and he's outdone the numbers a bit, and does that jump him into the second or first? Yeah, probably. I don't see, I don't see other other than what you mentioned, and that that being the, the the low fly ball rate, Miller Park, you know, helps it. I think we, I think he's going to be the same player, but yeah, the the the, the he's probably going to end up with thirty home runs. That could just as easily be twenty four next year with the exact same player, just because the timing of the rare fly balls that he hits. Did he hit him at home? Did he hit him on the road? Was there wind? Although in Miller Park, it's it's usually a, a a a roof, so he could be a player that, especially if he continues to get an MVP push and maybe propels the Brewers, you know, gets a game-winning hit in the in the wild card game and has a good playoff series, that momentum could also drive the price up. He could become. I think I think people were looking for a reason to draft Yelich even higher, and he may be giving it to them 
which could very well outprice him for those of us that are a little more conservative and do look at some of the underlying numbers. And there are some red flags there. Well, yellow flags. And a 33% home run per fly ball rate this year also is a cautionary tale uh, because of this, this same thing with the low fly ball rate and this high home run per fly ball rate. Although, you know, if it, we say if a guy shows a skill once, he, he owns it, and he's he's been up around 24% in the past, but 33 this year is pretty much double his career average. And my, there's a park effect there to consider, I understand. But to me, that's a that's a pretty important caveat when you're looking at Christian Yelich as a potential first-rounder. Uh, moving on, how about Alex Bregman, another guy who's having a tremendous year, a $34 by Baseball HQ's measure, a two ninety six batting average. He's got 30 home runs, only 10 bags, though, but... 100 runs scored, 100 RBIs, and and counting. Can we see Alex Bregman sneaking into the first round in uh, 2019? Yeah, and, you know, know, if if we're saying, I mean, he's doing much, much better than I expected. I did not anticipate the level of power we're seeing out of him. You know, I thought he was a nice player. I did not think, by power, it's just, as you said, he's also got 50 doubles. Uh, you know his numbers are kind of weird. He's he at least at least at the time we're recording, he's uh, he ends in a zero. The uh, you know 50 doubles, 30 home runs, 100 RBIs, 10 steals. You know it's kind of like this is what and even 100 runs. Everything is everything ends in a zero. Everything, so even numbers just, you know, across the when board. When I when I project a player like that, like I, I do it for ESPN, I get a note back. You got to change it because no one's gonna you know it looks like you're too lazy making that projection. So uh, it's just kind of funny, but you no, know, I think that that he's I mean, he's getting MVP buzz. So I do think you know that that not not well, no, he's not really getting the same MVP just because of, I think what he what it, the, the story is, if it weren't for what the Red Sox guys and the Cleveland guys are doing, Bregman would be in the MVP conversation. It's more of he's the Astros' best player. I don't know that he's getting a whole lot of AL MVP buzz, but yeah, he's uh, surprised me and. You know, I'd like to see him do it again. So maybe it's because I was a little down on him, or or not as high on him as others. That's going to carry over. Where you know, I'm you know from from pretend I'm from Missouri. I'm going to need to see it again before I'm willing to take the chance. And if I'm wrong, and I very well may be, you know, I'll shake the hand of the guy that took Bregman ahead of me. You said he's the best player on Houston. Would you take him ahead of Jose Altuve next year? Yeah, that's so. I mean, that's such a scary thing. With, you know, I, I the answer to Correa it would be yes, but uh, I don't. I would not take. Would I take him ahead of Altuve? That is a tough one for me because I was. I'm, you know, it's so the residual thinking. I was very, very. You know, Altuve was my number one guy coming into this year. I think that I think I think Altuve is going to be on a lot of championship fantasy teams next year because I think he's going to fall too much. I think I still only going to take Altuve. I think I think the I think what we're seeing this year is a bit of a blip. And I, the mistake I made with Altuve is, you know, we, we talk about some of the underlying metrics, the hard hit rate. If you take away Altuve's name and just look at the numbers, you're not that impressed. But I think Altuve is a guy that just, uh, you know, a hard hit rate is an average, and I think he. He turns on some balls, and I think others with such great play coverage, he just kind of dunks in a right field, and that just reduces his exit velocity average. And I think overall the, the picture is still pretty high. I just think you have to back off a bit with Altuve's both power and speed, but assuming he's durable, he's still going to get a batting average. And he's the kind of guy where 
talked about before where you're going to use his batting average to uh, eat away later with some high power, high speed guys. I'm not going to do it with the second pick, but if eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh pick, I'm much you know I, I don't I don't mind doing that with Altuve there. And heck, it may even be the second round where I where you know I give you know that's where you can take a Chris Davis or something like that with his perennial 247 average, but also perennial 42 homers. So you pair up a Davis and a and Altuve, and you got yourself a pretty nice start. Back to Boston, uh, Mookie Betts, of course, we mentioned. J.D. Martinez, we mentioned. Andrew Benintendi's having a really terrific year as well. And you mentioned him, uh, Andrew Benintendi. I don't think he's in the same league as some of those other guys. He's valued at $32 right now based on a really good five-category performance this year. But he's he's not going to be a Jose Ramirez in the counting stats. He's not going to be a Betts in, in that regard either. But really good across-the-board numbers. And so far, he's proved like a pretty good all-around ball player. Is there any chance Andrew Benintendi sneaks into the top 15? Nah, he's gonna one of the he's going to have a first round year at some point, but I don't think he's a first round player. And you know, I, I liked what he's doing against lefties, and I, he's now hitting second. And you know, even against most lefties, he's still hitting second. It's a great place to hit. So I think that you know, I think that Altuve, I'm sorry, Altuve. <laughs> I think that Benatendi is a nice player, but I don't think you know he doesn't have the the power nor you know the the eye popping power nor the dazzling speed to sort of separate himself he's just one of those guys that's just going to be you know above average across the board at the end of the day he's going to have that 30 32 dollar price tag and 30 bucks is kind of the the tail end of the first round but i don't think he has that 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 pizzazz to get him into the first round does Freddie Freeman, he's kind of a, a similar sort of guy, not quite as many stolen bases, but a few more home runs and a pretty solid batting average. He's a $30, $31 player at Baseball HQ this year. Uh, is that enough to sneak him into the first round? Yeah, he's one of those guys, I, like I, I kind of alluded to earlier, where in some you know, in some cases he was a first rounder. I regretted taking Joey Votto in my NFPC team and not taking Freddie Freeman. The second I said Votto, I had buyer's remorse. The thing with Freeman, though, is he's not hitting for as much power. So I think people may look at that and I think that, the, that 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 he may he may be an early second round pick. I don't know I don't think he's got the power numbers to be a first round pick especially because you know we're both smart enough to know, you know, we're, we 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 you know we talked six or seven or eight guys. All these guys aren't going to end up in the first round value next year, but you know they're going to be taken there. Uh, there's just there's just so many younger, flashy players that people are going to take in the first round now that someone has to fall, and I think that someone may be Freeman. As as you know, I he is I think third on the team, on the Braves in RBI since June 1st. Johan Camargo leads the Braves in RBI since June 1st, and Nick Markakis is second. Freddie Freeman is the is, in you know in where he hits in the order, et cetera, with with Acuna ahead of him and, and Albies, and while well, Albies is kind of having a down second half. But the point being, he's not, he's third, you know, you think of him as a run producer, he's third in the Braves in RBI since June 1st, Freddie Freeman. So, you know, I, I think that, again, there's nothing eye popping 
that's going to that's going to put him. I think at some point we thought maybe there was a, you know a consistent 30 home run bat, and maybe it turns out this year is the down year, and that's still there. But I don't think people are going to baseline him at 30 homers next year. And finally, Todd, we can move to some pitchers. We talked last week about Max Scherzer. We both agreed that he's going to be the new Clayton Kershaw, the guy who is is the pitcher that anybody who wants to try that strategy is going to put into the first round. But on this year's valuations, according to Baseball HQ, using a 70-30 hitting pitching split, um, we have a couple of other guys who are already top 15 in Jacob deGrom and Justin Verlander. And deGrom, with eight wins, <laughs> makes it into the top 15. And just behind them uh, at the uh, 17, 18 spots are Chris Sale and Aaron Nola. And I wonder, out of uh, DeGrom, Verlander, Nola, and Sale, any of them do you think should be in the first round next year or will be? I think we'll probably see, well, again, I, you know, I'm NFB-centric when I hear questions like this. They love their pitching. I do think that we're going to see a little bit of DeGrom. And even with the injuries, if Sale comes back strong in the, the, the re- remainder of the season into the playoffs, I think people will still be willing to, to invest in Chris Sale just because of those strikeouts. So I do think that we may see DeGrom and Sale sneak into the first, if not, it may, it may be early second, because we have talked about a ton of hitting that, that could jump in there. Um, DeGrom's interesting in that, yeah, the skills are up. They're not up a ton. I mean... He's out pitching his his ERA. You know he's very very good, but the expected ERAs are you know obviously they're they're not quite as as, as sparkling as his actual ERA. So there's there there should be some regression, but he's still he's still an outstanding pitcher and and just the fact that he's doing it, knowing that this is you know that it's just personal pride and and the whatnot. I think you know I think that's kind of that that's it, I don't know if it's special. But I think that he, he deserves a little bit of plaudits for that. You know, we, we see guys that, you know, mailing it in, so to speak. You know, this is a team that doesn't want to put David Wright in the field because of an insurance policy, yet he goes out there and knows he, if he gives up one run, he's apt, apt to get a loss every time, and he's just continuing to just dazzle. So, um, you know, you t- the, the older guys, the, the Justin Verlanders who are putting up similar numbers, I think, I think, I think he may fall. I don't think he's a first rounder. And a guy I need to do a, a, a deeper dive on is, is Corey Kluber. The velocity's down about a half mile per hour, which may not seem like much. I, I, I just think that what we're seeing with Kluber is last year was the anomaly in the in a good way. And he's sort of the same guy he was in, in 16 and 15. And I think that, you know, because 2017 was the recent, most recent season, we expected more. People are worried about Kluber. I'm not worried about Kluber. I just think that last year was the was was the year, and you know he wasn't a first rounder until this year. So to me, he's still not a first rounder because he's the same guy he was previous to 2017. A very very good pitcher, but not quite a first rounder. That's where he falls in the Baseball HQ valuation around number 24, 25 overall in baseball, uh, 26 right. actually. And of all things, Blake Snell's actually ahead of him. Blake Snell's oh. having a terrific year as well. I don't think he's going to be first-round material either because of the injury risk, and, and rightly so. So I'll conclude by saying here's my top five for next year. If I was drafting and I, I, the, I got one of the top five picks, here's how I'd rank them. Jose Ramirez first, Betts second, Trout third, Scherzer fourth, Lindor fifth. What do you say? 
I don't know exactly, but honestly, I'm going to have a hard time not putting Mike Trout first. Just be, I just I think he still is the best player, and and I know Fred's argument was a team context, and I've used that argument with Mike Trout before, and it's come back to haunt me because he still gets the hundred runs and RBIs in most seasons. I'm going to have a hard time not taking Mike Trout first. After that, I'm going to have to have J.D. Martinez in my top five. I don't know exactly where. And I'll have Mookie Betts there. And I'll probably have Jose Ramirez there, just because I mentioned with, with the upside. So what what actual order? I don't know. I'm probably something like, like a Trout, Betts, Ramirez, Martinez, and I don't remember if I had another guy. Or I don't think you can, you know, maybe an Arenado. Again, similar to Trout. I don't, th- you know, all these guys are flashy. We want to, we want to jump them up. You know, as long as he puts that Rockies uniform on, Dolan and Arenado has to be considered dangerous. So I, I guess that would be my top five. And I know there's not a lot of speed there, but I'd like to think I can make the speed up later. I know you had Scherzer there. Um, I'm not going to take if I can get one of those hitters. As good as Scherzer is, I'm still not going to take Scherzer. So that that's I think that's another difference. Is Scherzer's in my top ten. He's not in my top five. And I'll briefly explain why I think I'm putting Trout down a couple of pegs. And that is uh, up until 2016, he was getting almost 700 or over 700 plate appearances. In 2017, that fell by almost 200 plate appearances because of injury, 507. He's rebounded somewhat this year, but again has had injuries. He's going to be in the low 600s. I just think that maybe as strong as he is, as big as he is, the the way he plays and just how strong he is may be uh, detrimental to his long-term health in terms of connective tissue injuries and that kind of thing, which is what we're seeing already. And... uh, I don't know. To me, the injury risk forces him down just a little bit un- until he proves he's back at that 700 plate appearance level. I think didn't didn't he lose a lot of time with sliding and hurting his hand? And not to say that that can't happen again. That very well may. But to me, that's still lying on the flukish side of things. And if you know whatever number of games he lost, if that gets added back in, I still think we're okay. And, uh, who, you know, I, I, I think, I don't want to say everybody's injury prone. And you know what, this, we didn't talk about it. The scary thing with Mookie is he's down in plate appearances over previous seasons because he missed some time. We forget about the time he missed in the first half. You know, it, imagine if he didn't miss the time, the numbers would be looking at out, out of Mookie bets. So maybe that is a reason to have Mookie ahead of Trout because there's going to be some upside as far as that goes. And when I, you know, I'm doing this off the top of my head, when I do actually sit down with a spreadsheet, maybe I am going to have Mookie higher, but I uh, I just I am going to have trouble dropping Trout down more than the two hole. It's going to be uh, very interesting. It's something to talk about and think about. Have you started your uh, way ahead of time draft, the uh, prematurity draftulation that you're doing through NFPC? No, what we have done is we've confirmed that all all 15 teams are back, and we've confirmed that. We're going to be starting on September 28th, and we've confirmed the fact that someone's going to want to draft earlier than September 28th. And we've confirmed the fact that that's going to be allowed with no pressure for the next person to go. So uh, we are we are, we are are going to be... And the season ends, I believe, on the 30th. So that, that's, that's, I think, the Friday of the final, of the final series. So uh, we'll see how it goes. But we have, I think we'll be drawing draft spots, I'm, I'm assuming... Sometime fairly soon, but uh, right now I, the, the team I, I, I co-own with uh, with Derek Van Riper 
we are we're not going to win, but we are jostling between second and third. So our primary focus is figuring out how to get into second place. So uh, you know, just it, it's you know again we're not going to win, but what the heck? We we, we want to try te- team podcast as uh, we call ourselves our. Uh, are striving for the second place mark. Derek's already making out. He, he's more of a, uh, you know, touch and feel sort of ranker, and not as much spreadsheet driven as I am. So he's actually a bit ahead of the game. He's he's working on his pre ranks already. I will catch up with him soon enough, and uh, we'll figure out where we want to go from there. Well, as an honorary member of Team Podcast, uh, I wish <laughs> you the very best of luck, and we'll catch up with you again next week. All right, Patrick. Good talking to you. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week, I want to talk about valuation and the hitter-pitcher split. On the September 7th edition of the Baseball HQ Radio podcast, Todd Zola and I discussed how 2018's ADP first-rounders had fared this year, specifically if they were likely to be first-rounders again in 2019. As a value guide, I ran the BaseballHQ.com custom draft guide to check this year's values using a 69-31 hitter-pitcher split. As we worked through the list of 2018's top performers, we came to number 5, Max Scherzer, who had produced $41.5x5 value on the basis of 17 wins, a 231 ERA and 088 whip, and an MLB best 271 strikeouts. After our brief discussion, in which we agreed that Scherzer and maybe Jacob deGrom were both worth first-round selections next year, Todd tossed one last thought onto the table. He said Scherzer's $40-plus valuation comes about because of the way we conventionally price players. And keep in mind, as we talk about, too, getting a little nerdy here, that that's, this is based on a 70-30 or 69-31 or whatever split. That, that, that $48 is really $70. So it's just because uh, because of the way that we conventionally price players, if you split it fifty fifty, that's closer to a seventy dollar player. Okay, wait, what? Seventy dollars? Setting a hitter pitcher split is fundamental to establishing player values in leagues with auction style drafts. Basically, it's a question of how an owner should allocate the two hundred and sixty dollars, the usual amount, in his auction wallet. There are three schools of thought on this topic. The 70-30-ish split is the most common, in a range of 67-33 to 71-29 or thereabouts. It's widely used because, well, because it's widely used. In his excellent book, Winning Fantasy Baseball, Larry Schechter says the split is best because varying too dramatically from it, even if the owner believes he has a sound, rational reason, causes the owner to overvalue the hitters or pitchers and to undervalue the opposite. The result will be to pay more than necessary for one side at auction and to not buy enough production from the other. There can and are arguments made for the other valuations. There's 6238. Schechter himself mentioned this split in his book because roughly 62% of the available standings gain points come from the hitting side. This strikes me as an excellent and logical approach, except the only way to get an accurate SGP split is in hindsight. Then there's 6040. The argument for that is based on the usual 14 hitters, 9 pitchers roster requirement. If 14 23rds of the rostered players are hitters, the argument goes, then 14 23rds of the money should be spent on them. And 14 23rds of $260 is 60%. 50-50. 
The justification for this valuation method is that since both hitters and pitchers provide 50% of the stats, both hitters and pitchers should get 50% of the budget. To see what actual variations would be at some of the common splits, I reran the custom draft guide, changing the splits from 69-31 to 60-40 and then to 50-50. You can do this with any valuation engine or draft software that allows you to adjust splits, and all of the good ones do. Based on Schechter's ideas and my own common sense, I fully expected some of the values to shift around a little. I was not prepared to see how much. The first two rounds of a draft with dollar values using the original 69-31 split show pretty much what you'd expect. Mookie Betts, J.D. Martinez, Jose Ramirez up at the top, Trevor Story, Mike Trout, Christian Yelich also in the top 15, and only a couple of pitchers, Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom, as well as Justin Verlander, breaking into the top 15. In round two, a few more pitchers, about half and half, but overall, if you look at the top 30, you're looking at 21 hitters and 9 pitchers, with 7 hitters at $40 or more and only one pitcher, that's Max Scherzer. The table shows a pretty normal distribution of values, as we'd expect, in other words. Now the result when the CDG is reset to a 60-40 split, remember, reflecting the 14-9 roster requirement. All of a sudden, half of the first round is pitchers, including the top four. Overall, 17 hitters and 13 pitchers in the first two rounds. Only two hitters now at $40 or more, while five pitchers are at that level. There's been a huge shift towards pitchers as generators of value. They make up a disproportionate 45% of the top 30 list and nine of the first rounders. Scherzer leads the way with his value, as I said, over 40, actually over $50, and only Betts and Martinez are hitters valued over 40. Hitters are down in value about $4 apiece across this part of the board. And finally, there's the 50-50 split to which Todd Zola referred. The pitchers have pretty much taken over the first two rounds. Fully two-thirds of the players by value are in those first two rounds, 20 of them to 10 hitters. 11 pitchers including closers Edwin Diaz and Blake Trinan, are valued at more than $40 and climb into the first round. By contrast, no hitter at all, even close to 40 Betts is the top earner at 35 and the hitters are all now down by 10 to $14 from their 69-31 split values. On its face, it seems obvious that there are tremendous market inefficiencies here. If we accept the idea that underpins the 50-50 approach, namely that it's the correct way because pitchers do contribute half the stats. As I said, it's pretty simple to reset splits in the valuation engine, so it generates true player values that create, or maybe the better word is reveal, the inefficiencies. Even so, However, that leaves the paradoxical question of how to exploit the inefficiency. As Schechter notes in his book, using 50-50 values in a 69-31 world will mean you'll overpay for pitchers and thereby come up short, especially on the top hitters. Now, it might be that truly believing in the 50-50 split would mean voluntarily giving up on all the top hitters and waiting for hitters down in the lower reaches of value where the differences compress. For example, while Betts is worth $35 in 50-50, he probably wouldn't go for so little money. If he did, so much the better. But the overpay for players lower down is not so egregious. Eduardo Escobar is an $11 value in 50-50 and 16 in 69-31. Justin Smoke, 8 bucks in 50-50, 10 in 
And considering the money probably saved on the top pitchers, by 50-50 value standards, there might even be enough money in the budget to spend a little extra for the valuable mid-tier hitters and specialists. This might be even easier to pull off in draft leagues. In the first three or four rounds, the 50-50 owner could grab, say, Scherzer, DeGrom, Nola, and Diaz, knowing that there would still be targetably useful hitters to come. The Tommy Fams of the world, Jose Abreu, Matt Olson, Johan Camargos, Nomar Mazars, those kind of guys. There might even be more of them if other owners start looking nervously at the powerhouse pitching staff being snapped up early by the 50-50 owner, and as a result start grabbing up the SP2s and SP3 guys earlier than they otherwise might. In other words, starting runs. I don't think this would be easy, however. Using year-to-date values to draw up the lists is 100% hindsight, whereas in the real world we have to use projections and other forms of basically educated guesswork. One of the reasons cited by 7030 budgeters is that there's an inherent added risk in pitcher projections and in pitcher performance. They also include injuries in that. And there's widespread disagreement about the level of risk, especially when top guys like Scherzer and DeGrom are used. There's also the game theory aspect that says you could calibrate your higher projected values against the expectation in the average draft positions to have your 50-50 cake on pitchers and eat it too with the hitters. If you're the only guy who thinks DeGrom is worth a top pick or even a second round pick, you could probably grab a round two hitter and get DeGrom in round three, or maybe somebody like Trevor Bauer. After the podcast, I asked Todd Zola about this whole question of balancing 50-50 value belief with a 69-31 environment. And what he said, yeah, that's the problem. So there might be some opportunity here, but I still think it remains to be seen how we're going to be able to take advantage of it. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website, and of course we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 35 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon, and our Pitcher Matchups was presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular weekly guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in touch with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That helps us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another news and comment edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.